When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, welcome to the Story Clatter, where true personal stories about science help us to discover how weird and wonderful it is to exist in this world and be a human. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and today's stories explore the complex nature of postpartum depression, something that affects one in eight new mothers. Our first story is from Angie Chapman. Angie is a Pushcart Prize-nominated writer, a voiceover artist, and a Webby Award-winning storyteller. Her story was recorded in Boston at Turtle Swamp Brewing last year, and is a powerful account of what postpartum depression is like for a Black woman. Here's Angie. I'm three months pregnant and 42 years old, and I'm really excited about being pregnant with our third child because my hair is growing luxuriously. I can eat whatever I want. And it's, you know, I feel really good. My doctors, on the other hand, are kind of nervous because I'm a black woman, in case you hadn't noticed. And black maternal health is at is high risk, especially if you're over 40. But I ignore them because I have something else that I, that's on my mind, and that is that my husband is about to lose his job. We know already that his division at the company is going to be sold someplace else, so he'll get a nice payout and everything, but you know, those don't last forever, and babies do. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, he, you know, they already announced it and everything, so he's looking really hard for a job, and he brings this description of a job that he wants to me. And I scan it for the most important information there is, location. See, we have moved already a couple of times in our marriage, and I wanted to settle with our children in this house that we had built for us. But what can you do? He needs a job. We have three children. So it says on the sheet, somewhere in the Midwest. And I know right away that that's not Chicago because recruiters on the East Coast are familiar with that New Yorker magazine cover where they look out west of the United States and all they see is Chicago and then LA. (laughs) So I think to myself, well, you know, Minneapolis, Mall of America, that's gonna be okay. Omaha, Warren Buffett territory. Anytime there's a a billionaire in a town, it's gonna be okay and Kansas City, blues, jazz, and barbecue. Okay, great. He comes back after the initial interview and he says, it's in Des Moines, Iowa? 
I don't want to go to Iowa. There are no black people there. Every time you see the caucuses and the uh, presidential candidates on the uh, main road of the Iowa State Fair shaking hands, I dare you, I'm sure there's only one black person on that road. And he was put there for, <laughs> for um, just to pretend like Iowa has black people. And so I'm like, no, I'm, I'm not going. And my husband's like, what, huh, what? What do you mean you're not going? And I'm like, well, I just had this baby. She's wonderful. And I need to stay here in Connecticut um, till I'm past the you know, six month mark with the child. Cause I don't want to be looking for new doctors and somebody to check my health and everything. So you go ahead, send money and we'll be fine. So my husband's not a fool. And he knows me. And so he took our oldest son, our oldest, Adam, with him to Iowa as captive. <laughs> I don't care. Boys can live there. Me and the two girls can live here. It'll be fine, because I'm not going to Iowa. OK, time passes. And I start to get really depressed. And so I call my mother. Because I, on the one hand, I am missing my son and my husband a little bit. Um, and, but, you know, I, I can't, and I'm exhausted because I have my older girl who still has to go back and forth to school and then this baby. So I call my mother crying on the phone and I call my mother the next night and I call my mother the next night. And finally, my mother says, you know, you need to see somebody I can't listen to this all the time. You know you're going to have to move. You have to have your family together. Just swallow it and, you know, get on with it. And she said, and, and you know, since you've been crying every night, do you cry during the day? And I said, well, sometimes. She's like, yeah, that sounds like postpartum depression. Maybe you should go see your doctor. So I'm like, okay, that's, that's a good idea. I am tired of, you know, using all these Kleenexes and throwing them out at the end of the night. Um, I called them. And so I got the nurse practitioner and she asked me two questions. She said, do you have any thought of hurting your baby? And I said, no, she's really cute. I like her. <laughs> do you have any thoughts of hurting yourself? And I paused for just a moment. And she said, I want you to come in right now. And I did. And they gave me some medicine and I felt better, but I was kind of worried because I was breastfeeding and I didn't want my baby to have any drugs. I just wanted her to have my nutritious milk made specifically for her. So I called my mother again <laughs> and she told her what happened and everything. And she's like, well, you know, I'm, I work, so I can't be up with you all night <laughs> listening to you cry. So what you should do is don't you have a church home? you should go see your pastor. And I'm like, oh yeah, that would be nice. Okay, I'll go over there. So I called her, I made an appointment. We sat, we had tea and cookies. And she said, um, listen to me. She listened to me whine about the situation and how I really didn't want to move to Iowa. And she just nodded her head and she said, you know, do you know Lori? And it's like everybody in the church knows Lori. Lori had stage three cancer and she survived. And I said, well, yeah, I, you know, of course I know Lori. She's like, I want you to talk to her. 
And I'm like, okay, you know, I, that wasn't what I expected you to do, but I'll follow your directions. You know, I thought she was going to give me some scripture to read or something like that. So I went down to Wesleyan where Lori was working and she took me out to lunch and she told me her story about cancer and how the only way that she beat cancer was to change her life. She had to eat differently. She had to work less. She had to exercise. And she said, and all of those things were really hard for me to do, but I did them because I wanted to live. And act, and act, actually what I learned from that is whenever God gives you a change that you don't want, think of it as a gift. Don't complain about the wrapping paper. So I went home and I thought about it and everything. And meanwhile, my husband had another card up his sleeve where it's now getting towards Christmas. And he had our son call me and say, Mommy, aren't you and Tina and Nanette coming to Iowa for Christmas? How will, how will Santa find us if we're apart? <laughs> okay, so we came for Christmas. And we stayed for just a little while. That's what I told him. I'm only going to stay for a little while. We ended up staying the whole time, sold our house from afar, and I actually liked Iowa. I could get my hair done. There were black people. The reason why they weren't on the midway at the state fair is because they had been going to the state fair since the time they were two years old. And they got tired of it. I made friends. I had community. And so now, whenever another change comes upon me that doesn't feel quite right, I tell myself, this is a gift. Stop complaining about the wrapping paper. Thank you. That was Angie. To learn more about her, visit our website, storyclutter.org. Being a storyteller on our stage is just one way to make story clutter happen, but if standing alone in the spotlight in front of an audience doesn't speak to you, maybe becoming a story clutter donor might be more your speed. Story clutter donors play a vital role in our ability to bring you this podcast. We're in this together. Story clutter is one big experiment that's designed to connect us around our love of discovery, curiosity, and the natural world. If you believe in the power these stories have and this mission, please donate to the story clutter at storyclutter.org donate. The most popular level is $10 a month, and you can make your tax-deductible donation at storyclutter.org donate. But really, any level makes a difference, and we're so grateful to everyone who supports Story Clutter. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Our next story is from storyteller Anna Agniel. Her story was recorded in St. Louis in 2022, and it will have you feeling all the feelings. It's such a beautiful and powerful story about expectations and realities of relationships, motherhood, and marriage. Here's Anna.
A dyad is the smallest possible relationship possible in socio sociology. So dyads you might hear about are the doctor-patient dyad or the mother-baby dyad. And 13, 14 years ago, I found myself in a marital dyad, which I had romantic notions of what that would be like to be newly married, but it was much more difficult than I assumed because my husband battled addiction. And we saw a therapist at the time who said to us, someday you will be grateful for this experience. And I thought, you gotta be kidding me, lady. A couple weeks after that appointment, we had our first child. And in the buildup to that, we had this amazing team building experience of taking Lamaze classes together. And so whatever grief was in my heart really was softened by the experience of going through Lamaze classes with my partner, talking about how we would make it through labor and delivery and welcoming this new person into the world. And then in the labor and delivery room, our son, unbeknownst to us, was born with a cleft lip and submucous cleft palate. So as we are dealing with the, this brand new life, we are also trying to fathom what happened in utero that led to this cleft lip and cleft palate. A couple weeks after that, my husband and I are having this back and forth of who is doing more of the night work, who's waking up more at night with the baby. And I say to him, it seems like over the past couple weeks, it's gotten more difficult to wake you up. And he says, I told you, if you need my help, please just wake me up. When we'd first come home from the hospital, we had been an amazing tag team, our dyad fully intact, working back and forth and handing that baby off. But something had changed. And that's what I was trying to get at with him. I said, something is different. And after a long pause, he said to me, there's something I need to tell you. I need you to get the painkillers out of the house. And I didn't know exactly what he meant until I realized I had been prescribed painkillers after labor and delivery. So I went and I found the pill bottle and realized it was greatly diminished. I hadn't been taking them. So I brought it to him and I said, there's a lot missing from this bottle. Have you been taking these? And he said, yes. And in that moment, a door opened inside of me and out flew rage. But because our infant son was asleep and he rarely slept, because he was asleep and because I already knew what my husband was going through in battling his own addictions, I said nothing except, I'm leaving to take these somewhere. I will be back to feed our baby. And I got in the car and I started driving thinking, where am I gonna go with these pills? And I called my parents and for a moment I thought, maybe I will tell them what's been going on. And instead I thought, no, I'm going to swallow this story for just a little bit until I can figure out what's going on. So instead, I chatted with my parents. I thanked them for having us that past weekend. We had just come home from a trip and got off the phone with them and continued driving and crying and trying to find a place to throw away these pills. 
Thankfully, I found the most disgusting dumpster possible outside of a Walgreens and dumped the pills there and returned home a little later to see my husband sitting on the floor. He looked like he had been crying, clearly overwhelmed and lost. And instead of me joining him there in his overwhelm and his loss, I sat across the room from him and I said, I need another adult to help me raise this baby. From that moment on, I made a choice. Now, whether it was conscious choice or unconscious choice, I made a choice to start building a very succinct and efficient wall to hold back the emotions that were rocking my world. And what that looked like, the way that the brain was working in a postpartum world, was to become highly organized, which I already was. I'm a high-functioning, anxious person. So I'm on time for everything. I am extremely punctual, organized, and put together. While on the inside, there is hypercritical and self-doubt going on. So I'm building these like sandbags to keep back the wall of emotion. We, we did cloth diapers. We made all of our baby food from scratch. My husband had a rigorous schedule of trying to get a PhD and I was putting him through school. I returned to working full time, sometimes 13 or 14 hours a day while pumping and trying to get breast milk home to our baby. This was a grueling pace and yet I wouldn't let up I just kept stacking those sandbags, thinking the way to deal with this stress is to take good care of these two other people that I love. Now, I also thought to be a successful mother, I would keep our baby healthy. A child with a cleft lip and submucous cleft palate is very difficult to keep healthy because he had recurrent ear infections, constantly sick. He caught the dreaded H1N1, which at that time was the plague dominating the news. And it was impossible to get this baby to be well. He had extreme reflux. So every time we would feed him and he would struggle to eat, he would then throw it back up. I kept a pace thinking this is the way to keep my family safe and together. I even joined a 12-step group on my husband's um, suggestion because he could see how anxious I was. And I joined the 12-step community, but I thought, I don't need anybody else. I mean, I don't have the problem here. So I'll go ahead and join this group, but I'm really okay and I don't need a sponsor and I'll work the 12 steps by myself. By the time our son turned one, and I was keeping this pace, keeping those dyads as healthy as I could. There was one Saturday morning when I had a random quiet morning to myself. My husband had just left to go to the farmer's market. Our son was down for a nap. And all I could think was there was no rest in sight. And for a moment, I thought, what if I just walk out that door and never come back? And then I set that thought aside and I went to do the morning dishes. And as I was doing the dishes, I started to see in my mind's eye 
an image of my wrists being cut. And though this terrified me, it also equaled a release, a terrifying release. But I set that aside and I just kept going. And that image of my wrist being cut stuck with me for a couple of weeks to the point that I started fearing the knives in our kitchen. And one night we're going to sleep, the lights are out, our son is sleeping through the night by this point. And I say to my husband, it's gotten really, it's gotten really dark for me. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, I just sometimes I'm not sure it's worth it. And I've started to fear the knives in the kitchen. And he said, if you have that feeling in the middle of the night, will you please wake me up? And I thought, I mean, that's a compassionate thing to say. But also, he was a hard person to wake in the middle of the night. We already knew this. The next morning, our son had yet another medical appointment. I had another long day of work ahead of me. We were getting our son ready for yet another surgery. And as I dropped our baby off with the nanny, she looked at my face and she could tell I was struggling. And she said to me, what's going on? I said, I'm, I'm having a rough day. And I handed her our son and she was holding him in her arms and I started to cry. And our sweet son reached over and wiped one of my tears off of my cheek. And then he rubbed it in his fingers and then he wiped it on his shirt. And I cried more. I said goodbye to them and I got in the car and I called my mom. And I said, mom, it's gotten really dark. My mom is a nurse. <laughs> so my mom flips into a very medical mind. She said, tell me what you mean. I said, I've started to feel like it's not worth it to live. And I've become really afraid of the knives in the kitchen. And my mom said, do you have a plan? Where are you right now? Talk me through where you're going. And I'm going to call some people and I'm going to call you back. And I will, I will make sure you are where you are when I call you back. This began a cascade of events. Like that dam that I had built up for myself, everything started to push over the dam. My mom called my husband. My mom called my dad. My mom called my sister-in-law to find out who could come support me. We ended up going to the ER that day, being checked out by some doctors who then sent me on to a psychiatric facility to find out if it would be better for me to have inpatient care and which meant it was a long, long day. And as we got to maybe 10 o'clock at night, a short African man came out. The doctor said, I'd like to speak with you. And I thought my husband would come with me back to this room. And the doctor said, no, he has to stay out here. And this felt jarring. It felt like, this is my dyad. Like, you can't take my dyad from me. But we get back to this room and the doctor and I talk for a long time and he had a thick accent. And I was explaining to him everything that had transpired in the year from the addiction and the recovery and the relapses. 
to me trying to care for my husband, to caring for a baby with high medical needs who was constantly sick, a working job that I just couldn't quite keep up with anymore. And the doctor finally says to me, you are afraid of your marriage. And for a moment, I thought, maybe this has been lost in translation. I said, no, I'm not afraid of my marriage. My, my husband does not physically harm me. And he said, no, no, you are afraid of your marriage ending. And at that moment, the doctor sliced right through my dyad and stood between the two of us and helped me to refocus what exactly I had been doing. And I began to cry harder and I said, yes, I am. And he said, you have a baby at home, right? And I said, yes, I do. And again, he stepped right into that mother-baby dyad and refocused me. And he said, if I let you go home tonight, you are going to go take care of that baby, right? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, I believe you. And with the doctor's belief in me, I could suddenly, for at least 12 hours, believe in myself that for 12 hours, I would not hurt myself. That doctor and I, we made a plan for the next day for me to see a primary care physician, for me to begin regular, consistent therapy, to possibly start medication. But what he did for me in that night when he sent me back home was he sent me back home with the belief that I could still participate in these dyads, but I needed to participate in a different way. I had a huge road ahead of me. Therapy for me, therapy for my husband, therapy for us together, still raising a baby with a mountain of issues ahead of him. But I began to understand something different about dyads. And I think that perhaps sociologists have it slightly wrong because the smallest possible group for us humans is not that mother baby or that doctor patient or that spouse and spouse. The smallest possible group that is most important is the relationship that I have with myself. And I am only as good in that dyad as I am with who I am myself. Thank you. That was Anna. If you'd like to learn more about her, visit our website, storyclutter.org. Our website is just one way to connect with Story Clutter, but there are so many other ways, and we hope you'll use them all. You can always follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Head to storyclutter.org to become a financial supporter, or if you want to come to one of our shows or want to start your own Story Clutter show in your community, you can learn all about that on our website, too. This podcast is produced by me, Misha Gajewski, along with Nikisha Roberts-Washington, Jen Chen, and Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Clutter. The stories featured in today's episode were produced by Catherine Wu, Bart Thompson, Charlie Blake, and Sam Lyons. Special thanks goes out to Story Clutter's board and staff, including Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Leslie Brinson, and Lindsay Cooper.
Our theme music is by Ghost. And next week, I'll be back with stories that explore why we seem to care about other people's opinions. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try.